How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers. Because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein. I'm going to continue on part two of our conversation with Professor Alan Taylor of the University of Virginia. He's the author of American Republics, A Continental History of the United States, 1783 to 1850. Uh, As we finished part one of our conversation, we were talking about the War of 1812, which uh, resulted in uh, the United States probably not doing as well as it would have liked. As we finished part one, Professor Taylor was telling us of the American desire to invade Canada. Uh, That probably didn't work very well. But how did the war really end? And how did, in the end, Professor Taylor, uh, James Madison managed to declare victory uh, against the British, uh, even though it didn't seem as if it was going to be a victory when the British invaded our capital and burned down the capital and the White House? How did we manage to declare victory ultimately? I can remember when when I was young and the Vietnam War and Senator George Aiken of Vermont said the solution to all of this is declare victory and go home. Uh, and uh, there was advice that was not followed at the time or not followed soon enough. Uh, what Madison and his successor Monroe do is they they declare that the United States won the War of 1812. They can plausibly do it because just when news of the peace treaty reached Washington, D.C., at the same time, news came of a a terrific victory for the United States over British forces at New Orleans, uh, where the the commanding general was Andrew Jackson. So it's plausible then in in politics, popular politics, to say, look, uh, Britain Britain gave in because Jackson won this great victory, and and it's it's a noble victory, and we were fighting for honor, and we vindicated our honor. Well, what's left out of that is they were initially fighting to conquer Canada, uh, to crush native peoples, uh, to eliminate Britain from being in North America if they could. Uh, and they, they'd suffered defeat after defeat in their invasions of Canada. So they were really lucky that they got this big victory right at the end. Who was Andrew Jackson and how did he actually come to lead troops to win the Battle of New Orleans? Was he and part of the U.S. Army? Was he trained as a military officer? Who was he? Well, Jackson, at, at the time of the Battle of New Orleans, is a major general in the United States Regular Army. But he started out as a commander of Tennessee militiamen. And he doesn't have professional military training, but most of the general officers in the United States Army, the War of 1812, did not have professional training. Uh, West Point at that time was still quite small and and virtually trained only military engineers. So the generals were amateurs, and and most of them were bunglers as well as being amateurs. Uh, Jackson was not a bungler. Uh, He he was somebody who was very ruthless uh, and very capable. 
And he had won some very one-sided battles over native peoples in what is now Alabama and Florida, and had become you know, something of a hero at a time when the, the generals operating you know, the invasion of Canada to the north uh, were almost always losing. So Jackson gets promoted very rapidly and is in command of American forces in the south when a British invasion force threatens New Orleans. Now, the United States was really set up to break away from England so that the colonial leaders and colonial population, at least the white part of it, would be not considered under the thumb of the British and would be able to have liberty and freedom to do what they wanted and control their their lives. How could they, the colonists, square that view that people should have liberty with the idea that there was going to be slavery and slavery was quite well accepted, at least part of the South? And that Indians, Native Americans, really had virtually no rights in the United States. In fact, Andrew Jackson, among others, gained a lot of popularity for killing Indians or driving them further west. So how did the Americans square that that view of liberty being so important, but not for people who are Black or Native Americans? Well, I would say you're expressing what has become uh, the prevailing, and I would say, frankly, liberal conception of freedom as something that should be universal. And that was a controversial position back at the end of the 18th century, start of the 19th century. Uh, they, They can in the Declaration say all men are created equal, but the reality was they didn't treat all people as equal. And what's left out of that is that race matters immensely at that time. The majority of Americans were white. The great majority of them felt quite clearly superior to African-Americans and to Native peoples. They were also great believers that uh, true freedom required property and that the business of a government was to protect property rights. So you have, from the colonial era, you've inherited a property law that includes the fact that um, enslaved people were property. And whatever nice things might be said in the Declaration of Independence, practical politicians who framed the Constitution said, that's the reality of the world we live in. We wish, many of them wished it could be different. Alexander Hamilton wished it could be different. Much of the time, I would say Madison and Jefferson wished it could be different, but it wasn't. So what are you going to do? You're going to frame a government that's going to protect property in the country. And one of the greatest forms of property in terms of aggregate value were enslaved people, hundreds of thousands of them. So the the people who led the United States at its origins are of two minds. When they're thinking on the theoretical, philosophical level, most of them would say slavery is evil. It's bad for white people. It's bad for black people. Um, And then they are also operating on the practical political level where they say, what happens if we wipe out millions of dollars of property value by emancipating the enslaved people? That's going to create havoc in our society and our economy, an economy and a society set up for the benefit of white Americans and not for the benefit of African Americans. And that society, they're also committed to expanding westward. Because the population is growing and they want the next generation to have at least the standard of living of the preceding generation, which means more farms because it's an agricultural country. 
So for all of those reasons, American leaders can say, yeah, there's a philosophical conception of universal freedom, but we can't afford it. And so they didn't. So ultimately, uh, the North, which had slavery at the time of the Revolutionary War, is dependent less on slavery as its economy evolves than the South, which because of the invention of the cotton gin, uh, cotton becomes much more popular and requires a lot of slaves to pick the cotton in the way they uh, operated then. So how did the uh, North and how did the South look at expansion westward? Were the North interested in expanding westward with slaves or without slaves? And how was the South looking at expansion westward with slaves or without slaves? And, and how did that get resolved ultimately? Well, people in both of the regions recognize that there has developed two quite different societies and quite different economies between North and South. In the North, most of the labor is free, uh, and it's by people who either own their own farm and employ their own families, occasionally hiring people paying wages. And in the growing and the emerging, I should say, industrial sector of the country, it's the wage labor model that's prevailing in the North. And so Northerners come to think that's that should be normative. That's what the whole country should be. That's most compatible with free government. And that's our way of life. And as our population grows and we move westward, that's our way of life ought to prevail. But in the South, you have a largely agricultural economy, which increasingly is invested in raising cotton for the global market, including the American Northeast. Uh, and uh, they feel that they need enslaved people, and they do have a large enslaved population, and they fear that if they freed uh, the slaves, they would become a, a threat to kill their former masters. So for both security reasons, perceived security reasons, because in point of fact, there's, there's, there's really no evidence that enslaved people, um, if they became free, were going to kill their former masters because there were freed blacks and they didn't kill their former masters. But anyway, it's, it's a fear. And it's a motivational fear, along with the, with the reality that their economy depends on enslaved labor, which benefits the propertied class. So the Southerners want to expand their way of life. And they're very fearful that if the Yankees get their way and they control the West, they'll control the American future because all the new states will come in with a Yankee way of life based on free labor and uh, family farms and a growing industrial sector, and that the South will then be cooped up as a minority region, and uh, that will be disastrous for their political power in the country, and ultimately would be disastrous for their economic and social situation. So let's talk about the Native Americans. Uh, the Native Americans, you could argue, owned all of the North American territory before the uh, Europeans showed up. How did the Colonial leaders and other people in the United States who came from Europe initially, how did they think that they actually owned the land? And how did they think that they could persuade the Indians to move out of the land that they had been occupying for hundreds, if not thousands of years? Well, the European powers, when they start to move into the Americas, they develop this legal doctrine that's very self-serving, which says... Uh, native peoples don't really possess the land. They're they're like wild animals. They they move around, they hunt, and they fish, but they don't really improve the land. So they're not what 
God really wants. And so if we just simply come and discover a place, and then we're going to bring in our property system of private property and uh, intensive agricultural development, that God wants that. And we have every right to dispossess Native peoples. Now, they would like to get something that seemed like consent from Native people. So they would present these treaties to Native leaders and the native leaders are divided into many different people speaking different languages, so they're not all cooperating with one another by any means. And so the, the invaders are, are playing divide and conquer and trying to get some native groups to sell off uh, some of their land, often at the expense of some other native group. And they play this game and they play their superior numbers and their superior military. And then they also have the, uh, the advantage that native populations are, are declining very rapidly because of diseases introduced from Europe, to which uh, these were new diseases and, and native peoples didn't have the immunities necessary to, to fight them off. So a, a shrinking native population becomes very vulnerable to these uh, European powers, and especially to the United States once the United States takes over from Britain in, um, in most of North America. I see. Okay, so let's talk about, uh, as we move forward with the country's development, a question that uh, you write about in your book, which is the development of temperance movements. Uh, alcohol, I guess, was more popular than water because water wasn't all that clean, I guess. So to quench one's thirst and maybe make one feel good, people tended to drink a lot of alcohol. Mm -hmm. uh, the result of people drinking alcohol in excess can be not that good for society in some cases. So where did the opposition to alcohol develop and how strong did it become? Well, the United States probably had, for a large country, the largest uh, consumption of alcohol of any other and, and largest per capita. And uh, the consumption of alcohol was more than twice per capita what it is today in the United States. And so at the same time that Americans are creating a government which requires the active participation of a very broad electorate, this is a period of time when alcoholic consumption is at an all-time high. That level of consumption produces an array of problems. Um, public drunkenness, uh, people who, who are not paying full attention to their jobs, uh, people who beat their wives, and it's overwhelmingly a, a male consumption of all of this alcohol. And there's also the perception of, yeah, are these people really making informed decisions if you know, they're going to the polls drunk? And it's also a period when you're developing um, industries and, and machines aren't very forgiving of drunken people operating them. And they tend to consume things like arms and legs. And that clogs up the machine and it's bad for the owner of the machine. So uh, employers are concerned about this. And then religious people. People who are very committed and a kind of evangelical form of Protestantism is uh, on the rise at that time. And so religious leaders are saying, hold on here. You can't be a good Christian and be drunk like this. So, so religious leaders are really pushing very hard. And then a lot of women are pushing for it because they're bearing the brunt of a lot of male misbehavior. And there's the conviction, well-informed conviction, that if they could just sober their men up, there'd be people more attentive to their jobs and uh, less prone to beat their kids and beat their wives. 
So women, religious leaders, and then people who are committed to uh, increasing America's economic development, all of them come together to say, you know, we really need to discourage Americans from drinking so much. And then if persuasion doesn't suffice for them to go cold turkey on this, then we got to get state governments involved to pass laws to criminalize the consumption, production, and sale of alcohol. Now, the United States was really formed initially by people who were, to some extent, some of them, seeking religious freedom of some type or another. Um, as the United States developed in the period we're talking about, how important was religion to the, the colonial uh, population? Did it expand? Were more and more people going to church or more and more people not going to church? Uh, so in the colonial era, there, there are lots of people who are going to, to these colonies uh, because they're unhappy with their situation for practicing their faith in Europe. Uh, sometimes they're, they're looking for an opportunity to exclude people who, who don't worship the same way they do. So, for example, New Englanders are seeking religious freedom for themselves, uh, but they're driving out people like Quakers and Baptists um, and discouraging others from coming in. So it, it's a mixed thing in the colonial era. Then when you get to the new United States, uh, overwhelmingly, the political conviction is that uh, individuals ought to be able to choose for themselves and that the, the role of the state government is to allow people to choose for themselves. It's overwhelmingly a Protestant country at that time uh, until we get into the 1840s when there's a major surge of Catholic immigration into the country. There always had been Catholics, there had been Jews, um, but other than that, the great majority of people were Protestants, but divided into many different competing denominations. And the, the competition of those denominations actually served to make religion more omnipresent in American life, a, a form of religion, meaning the evangelical Protestantism, um, as these competing denominations are, are spreading out, creating new churches and recruiting people to come in. And in most of rural America, the, there's not much social organized groups other than churches. So uh, as America expands as a rural country, um, but also in the cities, people are, are finding it a, a, a disordered, uh, alienating experience in these growing cities. And for many of them to find a sense of community, is it's done by joining the church. So the United States becomes, by the 1830s, probably the most churched country in uh, the Western world. So you point out that as more and more immigrants are coming into the country, um, they are to some extent, not welcomed by other people who are already here. And yeah. you begin to see more and more fights. Uh, you call it uh, kind of a mobocracy, where mobs come together to pick on people, fight against people who who are not like them. Can you describe right. this social phenomenon a little bit more? This is a peak period by this. I mean, uh, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s are a peak period for riots in the United States. There had been riots before. There would be riots afterwards. But this is a peak period. Uh, city governments are weak. Um, police forces, they're new. They're small. Um, they're generally corrupt. Uh, generally, some ethnic group through politics has gotten control of the police force, and so the police look the other way when that ethnic group goes and beats up on another ethnic group. And so there's just shocking levels of violence, particularly in the cities, 
in, in the forms of going into neighborhoods and uh, beating people up, destroying their homes, burning their homes, burning their churches and schools, and uh, in some cases, lynching people. Now, the, the, the chief victims of this, the people who are most often targeted are African-Americans. The people who are second most targeted, it's, it's fairly distant second on this, are, are Catholic immigrants. But sometimes it's the Catholic immigrants who are the ones that are doing the attacking of the African-American neighborhoods. So it, it's not at all a pretty picture, I would I would say. And it, it's really quite shocking to a lot of people who are going, well, what's going on here? Is this really what we meant when we are pursuing a government that is promoting freedom? So earlier we talked about Andrew Jackson winning the Battle of New Orleans, becoming very popular. Eventually, after failing one election effort to become president, he loses to John Quincy Adams. He eventually becomes president of the United States. As president of the United States, what was um, the obsession that uh, Jackson had with respect to Indians, Native Americans, and with African-Americans, slaves? Was he very anti-African-American, very anti-Native American? Well, Andrew Jackson is a great believer in white supremacy. And so if you put him to it and say, are you anti-African-American? You say, no, you know, I want to provide African-Americans opportunities as slaves which he was he was persuaded. And again, it's not unique to Andrew Jackson. This is a widely held belief in the United States, especially in the South, that, that slavery is a system that is beneficial for African-Americans and they're not capable of anything else. And Jackson believes that. So uh, Jackson doesn't see any problem in perpetuating slavery. He thinks it's, it's good for white people. He thinks it's good for black people. Now, of course, he's not consulting black people because black people didn't think it was so great for them at all. Uh, now, as for Native Americans, uh, he, he grew up uh, in South Carolina and then as a young man in Tennessee at a time when um, upcountry South Carolina and then Tennessee were, were frontier societies by, by people who are aggressively pursuing their own interests by creating farms and plantations at the expense of Native peoples who they are pushing out. And when there's resistance, they're killing them. The Indians are fighting back and often very effectively. So Indians get demonized as, as bloodthirsty savages that have to be moved out. And even when presented with lots of evidence for, say, example, the Cherokee, who uh, were, were trying to maintain peaceful relations and wrote their own constitution and got a printing pass and set up their own capital and are, are doing their very best to adopt American ways while preserving their own sovereignty as, a, as their own nation within the United States, Jackson just says, no, you're incapable of anything other than savagery, and you're going to have to get out and move west of the Mississippi. And Jackson used every trick in the book and ultimately the force of the American army to push the Native peoples who lived east of the Mississippi uh, onto new reservations of land, primarily in what is now Oklahoma. Now, under Jackson's presidency, uh, a concept arises by leaders in the South called nullification, which is mm -hmm. to say we can nullify what the federal government might want to do. Um, those people who are advocating nullification were basically trying to protect slavery. But ironically, Andrew Jackson, who's not in favor of freeing blacks for sure, he decides to oppose nullification. Can you explain who was the principal proponent of nullification and how Jackson prevailed in that effort? Well, nullification is an idea that goes back to 
Thomas Jefferson, who uh, was so upset by the Federalist laws criminalizing dissent uh, in 1798 that, that he persuaded the state legislature of Virginia to pass resolutions basically saying that what the Federalists were doing was unconstitutional and the state had the right to judge the constitutionality of any federal measure and to interpose its authority. In other words, to protect individuals living within its state against that particular federal law. Now, most Americans uh, said, yeah, we don't think that's such a great idea because basically you're turning the federal government into a nothing. If a state can declare some law it doesn't like, to be unconstitutional and to block its enforcement within its state boundaries. But South Carolina revived this idea uh, around 1830 because they're upset not, I mean, they're certainly concerned about any kind of federal power to interfere with slavery. But what nullification is triggered by is uh, a protective tariff, laws by the federal government that imposed customs duties at such a high rate on imported manufactured goods that it benefits American manufacturers who are then protected from foreign competition. So it's benefiting manufacturers in the Northeast who have pushed this in politics. And so it's a it's an expression then of the emerging majority, particularly in the House of Representatives, of representatives from the North. And that's making South Carolinians really upset because they're having to pay higher bills to buy things like the clothes for their enslaved people. So slavery is involved in this, but they're not invoking nullification over something the federal government's doing about slavery directly. They're doing it to try to block this protective tariff, which is expensive for them as consumers of imported goods. So th this creates a tension within the South. Uh, so Andrew Jackson speaks for a lot of Southerners who say, you may not like the protected tariff, but it's legal. And we're going to work within the political system in the federal government in Congress. And Jackson wanted to lower the tariff, and he, and he works away and does lower the tariff with the help of a majority in Congress. But the South Carolinians are impatient. And they create a crisis. And you don't want to get Jackson angry at you. Uh, so, so Jackson told people, if South Carolina doesn't back down from this, I'm going to go into the South and I'm going to hang the bunch of them. So it comes pretty close to uh, a civil war in which Jackson's going to be in there, even though he would be attacking fellow Southerners because they have confronted him. And you don't want to do that. And John C. Calhoun of, of South Carolina was on the outs with Jackson already and Jackson hates Calhoun. And if Jackson hates somebody, that somebody is almost virtually dead to him. So that, that's what the nullification crisis is. Ultimately, most of the South persuades South Carolina to back down. Uh, there is no civil war and the protective tariff is reduced, but not eliminated. Okay. Uh, as we get to the final part of uh, your book, let me just uh, ask you a few questions about how the United States expanded westward. Uh, who was James Polk? How did he become president of the United States? And why was he so determined to capture lands west of the Mississippi? Well, what, um, the United States had expanded, thanks to the Louisiana Purchase, all the way to the Rocky Mountains. The question becomes, is the United States going to then go all the way to the Pacific? 
and in in particular for Polk, it's is is Texas and and points in in the Southwest and including California. Is that going to be brought into the United States? Now, now, most Americans vaguely thought, yeah, the United States ought to expand all the way to the Pacific. But the issue is, should we use war to do so? And uh, Polk is from Tennessee. He's a political protege of Jackson. You know, he's coming after Jackson's presidency. And Polk is, is uh, willing to do whatever it takes to get as much territory as rapidly as possible for the United States. Now, he's got two challenges. One is if he wants to expand into the Northwest, you're going to tangle with the British Empire, which is also claiming what is now British Columbia, state of Washington, state of Oregon. Uh, are you going to tangle with the British over that territory, which, which would be a very, very difficult war? And then he wants to, you know, the United States had just before his presidency acquired Texas uh, at the expense of Mexico. Will, will you grab more of Mexico, which meant the Southwestern California? Mexico, weak country, poor country. Um, pretty easy to defeat probably by the United States. So Polk decides, I'll compromise with Britain. I'll take half of the Pacific Northwest. I'm not compromising with Mexico. I'm going to take everything I desire for the United States in that part of North America uh, using military force. And that's what he does. He provokes the war with Mexico, which is a very one-sided war, and which is going to subtract the northern 40% of Mexico and add it to the United States. Now, in that effort to take over Mexico, which ultimately succeeds, and the United States takes over California and virtually all of the territories between California and the Mississippi, uh, there is a famous battle of Alamo, which the Americans lost. Why is that a battle that the Americans lost to the Mexicans? Why is it such a famous battle? Well, well, that actually happened a decade before. So the, the Polk's War will happen in the later 1840s. Okay. Uh, and the Alamo happens in 1836. And it's really the United States is not involved in that battle. Uh, what's involved is... Settlers who've left the United States and gone to live in the Mexican province of Tejas and settled uh, around places like San Antonio uh, have decided that they're disgusted with Mexican rule and particularly of the dictatorship of Santa Ana. So they, they waged their own revolution to create their own country, country of the Republic of Texas. And the Santa Ana was not going to take that lying down. So he invaded uh, this rebel province uh, and he managed to surround uh, a garrison in San Antonio at a place called the Alamo. And uh, he's not in the business of taking prisoners. So he, he slaughtered this garrison, which which had, had put up quite a good fight. So th this is a case where uh, eventually Santana will lose. And the victorious Texans, who are immigrants from the United States, turn the Alamo then into a, a shrine to celebrate their own uh, defiance unto the death of Mexican rule, which, which is what um, the Alamo remains to this day. Despite it being a defeat, it, it's it's cast as a glorious defeat in which you know, the leaders become great heroes, the dead heroes, become a great hero to the Republic of Texas. And then when the Republic of Texas is absorbed by the United States in 1845, 
then they're adopted by the United States as their heroes too. So the Fugitive Slave Law is eventually passed by Congress designed to um, get slaves who've left their slave owners, may have gone into territories where slavery wasn't allowed any longer. Uh, it's designed to enable the slave owners to capture their slaves back, either getting cooperation from those in the non-slave states or enable them to send people into the non-slave states and bring the slaves back. Can you explain what was the thinking behind the Fugitive Slave Law and how did it work? Well, I think we have to qualify the notion of it's you know slave states versus free states. That's been used a lot at the time. The, the reality was under the federal constitution, as it existed at the time, from the very start, there's a fugitive slave clause in there, which says that if a slave leaves one state and goes into another state, it's the obligation of the new state, the new state of residence for that runaway, to cooperate in restoring that enslaved person back to its master. So that an African-American who escapes slavery in Virginia and goes to Pennsylvania does not become free. Now, their potential to pass as free greatly improves if you're in Pennsylvania over Virginia, but you're at constant risk that your master is going to come to Pennsylvania and get the, the legal authorities, local magistrates, constables uh, to help them grab you and take you back to slavery. Now, what the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 does is make it even easier for the masters, because there were northern juries that had scruples about all of this, and, and that really upsets the masters. So in this case, they want the federal government to be stronger. They want federal appointed commissioners uh, to make the decisions, and they will be paid twice as much per person to restore somebody to slavery as they will if they release them to freedom. And there will be no juries involved. So this makes it even more dangerous for escaped slaves uh, in the northern states. And so if they want really to become free at that time, what they need to do is get out and get to Canada. And, and thousands of them will do that. Okay. So um, a final question, Professor Taylor, if somebody is, uh, let's say, a potential reader of your book, but they're not sure they really want to read it all, if you were going to summarize in one paragraph or so why this era of our country is so important and why they should read it, what would you say? Well, I would say the, the early republic, meaning the period from the revolution up to the Civil War is the period when our institutions, including political parties, um, take form. And a lot of the things that we debate today in the United States, including where's the balance point between federal responsibility and, and state power, who is a citizen of the United States and who gets to define limits on citizenship, all sorts of issues that we're still arguing about today go back to our constitution and go back to the initial efforts to implement it and the divisions between the regions of the United States, which are very much with us today. They have roots back in this period. So I think it, it gives us potentially a deeper awareness of where we are as a country if we understand this formative period of time and all of its difficulties uh, of the late 18th century and early 19th century. 
Thank you very much. I appreciate your spending this much time with us, and I highly recommend your book. I enjoyed reading it. Thank you, Professor Taylor. Well, thank you very much, and I'm, I'm very grateful for all you've done for promoting history education in this country. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.